so we're looking at Philippians 1, uh, starting in verse 7. And uh, if you weren't here last week, we covered verses uh, 3 through 6. And we said that verses 3 through 6 were going to kind of be part 1. The, the whole of, of Philippians 1, 3 through 11 is uh, most specifically called something like, in your Bible, Paul's prayer or, or Paul's thanksgiving and prayer, something of that nature. And, and so as we look at the text, we, we kind of weren't able to, to break it down into one sermon last week, but we, we uh, kind of cut it up. And so we looked at verses 3 through 6 last week, and, and we're going to look at 7 through 11 this morning. Now, what we said about last week was we, we learned some things from Paul's prayer. He, he starts off, let me roll into it with you. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. So Paul's attitude is, is thankfulness. We see that his attitude is, is joyful. And, and we see as he comes through, he's, he's, he's thankful. He's remarking upon grace and he's remarking upon peace. But then also we kind of have to zoom back a little bit and understand that Paul's sitting in jail. And when anyone's in jail, you're never really thankful. You think this sucks. This is the worst. This is not fun. Food isn't good. I don't have my shoelaces. You know, <laughs> it's, it's not a great situation. It's not fun. And, but Paul writes in a way that you would never know that he was in jail. He wouldn't, you would never know that his background and his situation was, he's, he's, you know, he's sitting in a rotten place, you know, and he's dealing with, with chains that are chafing his wrists and, and oppression from the guards, but here he writes and he says, I, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy. And so Paul, he's praying for them. And, and this prayer here, it gives us a little bit of insight. When, when we pray in public and when Paul prays here in his letter, it allows us to learn from it. It allows us to see the things that he's praying. And part of the purpose of that public prayer is so we can learn from each other. As we, as we speak forth scripture and pray doctrine, we learn and grow together in the knowledge of God. And Paul does that. He says, I pray for you always. So Paul prays frequently for them in every prayer of mine, making his prayer with joy. Paul's prayer is focused on, on Christ. He's not looking at his own situation. So when we pray, we ought to, to not be consumed with our own circumstances, but we want to have a zoomed out view. We want to see Jesus. And the reason that Paul can overlook all of his circumstances and his trial, the reason he can overlook his difficulty and worry and anxiety is because he sees that Ultimately, Jesus has a plan and he's working. He sees Jesus as one who saved him from his sins, who has reconciled him to God. And so Paul prays this. He says he, he's making his prayer with joy. And then he says one of the reasons he's thankful is because of their partnership in the gospel. He says, I'm, I'm making this prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel uh, from the first day until now. And, and what we said last week, you know, as we looked at this idea of gospel partnership, you know, we, we, we asked the question, what does that really mean? And, and when we think about gospel partnership, most often, if you've ever spent any time in church, your mind instantly goes to like, someone's going on a missions trip and I'm going to buy something at a bake sale so they can go. You know, I'm going to go buy, you know, four cookies even though I'm on a diet because I got to sacrifice for the gospel so they can get on a plane and go and do something. That's, old, that's, you know, that's kind of instantly what it looks like. I came from a large church. 
uh, down south. And at the time, you know, whenever there was anything like that, when someone would go on a, on a missions trip, it would be like, you know, we're having, uh, you know, we're, ha- we're having like fish tacos out in the courtyard after come and buy like fish tacos for like six dollars. And, and I was awesome. I was excited about that because I love tacos. And, um, and, and so we, every, everybody would go out there from the church and they would go and buy it. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about contributing in this kind of financial way. I mean, like, oh, yeah, good luck. Go out there. You're going to go do this. Paul, when Paul talks about partners in the gospel, notice what he says. He says we were partners in the gospel from the first day until now. They were partners in the gospel from the first day until now. And so what he's actually talking about is partnership in the gospel is, is a true friendship, a true community. And Paul's writing this to address the needs of the church. And one of the needs, we'll find out, is there's these two women who are causing some division, Judea and Syntyche. And there's, there's some disunity, and this partnership is in danger because they're being selfish. They're, they're fighting, and it leads to further division in the church. And Paul's writing to, to deal with that and to remind them of their partnership, to, to tell them, guys, we're all one in Christ. And this disunity, this conflict that's happening, it's because Christ isn't in the middle of it. The grace of God is not present to you right now. And so Paul's writing to deal with that, and he's writing to, to demonstrate what true community is. And true community, true friendship, if you have any true friends, any true community that the Bible talks about, it's gospel partnership. What that means is you have a common bond in Christ. You're built around knowing and enjoying Christ together. You have a relationship that is, that is brought together in bonds because of Christ. Uh, on community group on Friday, we were kind of talking about what partnership in, uh, in the gospel looks like. And, and I was explaining, you know, how we can end up oftentimes with a, a room full of people who have different backgrounds, who come from different cities, who have different tastes in music and different tastes in food, who, who enjoy different colors and different styles. And we're all brought together under the banner of Christ because he has saved us all. It's the thing that binds us all together as his people. And that is true gospel partnership. And that's what you want to cultivate in your relationships. But gospel partnership also goes kind of beyond that because it's also participating in the gospel together. And so the Philippian church, they also were participants in the gospel. Paul didn't just say that, you, that you, know, you received the gospel when I came to you, but we see throughout the letter that they contributed financially. They prayed for Paul when Paul was in prison. They sent Epaphroditus to bring him money and to care for him while he was there. They did something about it. They showed that they were participating in the gospel. Now, Paul is also participating in the gospel with them by reminding them that their disunity, their conflict, the things that they're dealing with, those things, they're, they're not found in the gospel. The gospel says that Christ has brought us near, that he has removed all conflict. And Paul's speaking the gospel to them. He's saying, you're all brought near by the blood of Christ. You're all one in Christ. And so when you create relationships with people who are Christians, when you create relationships with members of the body of Christ, you want to know that you have a true gospel partnership with them because you allow them to speak into your life. When, you're in, when you have anxiety, that, per, that friend of yours who you would consider to be a friend, you want them to have the freedom and ability to say, 
You have anxiety right now. You might be scared, but look at who Jesus is. You might be overwhelmed with the cares of life, but look at Jesus. He is, he is the shield about you. He's the lifter of your head. He's your glory. You're finding your identity in something else. True gospel partnership will call you to find your identity in Christ. And so when you think about your friends and your community that you're building here at school, at work, in, in every relationship that you begin to develop, you want to develop not just friendships that are built upon affinity or proximity. You don't want to f- just build friendships and, and, and uh, relationships that are built around, you know, your shared interest or passion. Because, like, what happens when you guys were all into Creed in 1992, and then, like, they're, everyone hates them now, and then all of a sudden, no one, you can't be friends, because it's like, no one wants to admit it. You lost your friendship, you know? It's like you have, like, these, these things that all of a sudden, that got not cool, and then, every, you're, you're, you know, you've, you've lost it. What happens if you build your friendship around having kids, and you're, you're in a family, you have kids, and, and you've, you've built this, but then you know, maybe your only kid dies and now you're not a mom anymore and you can't go to that mom's group. You're out. You've got a friendship built on nothing. What happens when you've built your relationship upon your, your spouse? When, you, when you, you know, you're kind of hanging out with other married people just because like, oh yeah, we can go do things, fun things together. And it's not to say that those things are wrong, but when those things are the reason and purpose primarily for your friendship, it's, it, it's going to end up not being a true gospel partnership. True gospel partnerships, they transcend stage of life. They transcend your passions and interests. They bring us together because we love and enjoy Jesus. And that's the most important thing. And that's what Paul's going to get to here. So that long intro to say, starting in verse 7, Paul says, you know, he's all pumped up about them. He's reminding them because they're in disunity. He's reminding them, I'm thankful for you guys. He uses all this unity language. Notice how often he says all. He addresses them as all. He never says, like, I'm thankful for you who are keeping the peace, and you who are blowing it, you know, you're in trouble. He always addresses them as all, as if they were all in the, uh, as they all are seen in the eyes of Christ. So he says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul says, it's right, it's okay for him to feel this way. It's okay for him to have not just these emotional feelings. When he says, you know, it's okay for him to feel this way, he's not just speaking to that emotional aspect. Like, it's, it's, he's not saying, like, I'm a guy and it's okay for me to get, like, a little bit, like, sappy about, like, you guys because, you know, of these things. Paul is, is feeling thankful for the Philippians. He's remembering them, it tells us in verse 3. He's praying for them frequently. He, he's, he has a zoomed out view of, of life and of Christ. And so in this letter, what Paul's seeking to do by saying, it's right for me to feel this way, he's telling them, because I've been praying for you so much, because I've been investing my life in you, it leads me to greater thankfulness for you. It leads me to greater uh, joy in Christ. And as a byproduct, you experience the love of Jesus. And in the letter here, Paul's going to show us, and he shows the Philippian church, that when we think about things in a Christ-centered way, when we think about the gospel, when we think about Jesus, it, and, and we feel that way, it leads to unity. It leads to, to growth in Christ-likeness. It leads to concern for those who are in need, and we, and we will go and meet those needs. And so Paul says, 
there's a reason that I feel this way. The purpose I feel this way. And, and then he says, I feel this way about you all. There it is. His kind of, you know, his, his use of unity language there. And then he says, I, I feel this way about you because I, I hold you in my heart. What, what Paul's doing here is he's not saying like, you know, he's not, he's not doing the E.E. The e. Cummings like little like, you know, I carry you in my heart sort of like thing you see on Pinterest everywhere. It's like on everybody's like little wall on Facebook and stuff, those little things that show up. He's not, he's not using that like little phrase to kind of, uh, you know, have a catchy slogan for them. What he says here, he's explaining that his attitude towards the church, his attitude towards the Philippians is motivated by two things. What does he say? He says, I hold you in my heart and it's motivated by their partnership in God's grace. And so when he says that I'm, I'm, uh, I hold you in my heart, he's expressing more things than just this sentimental feeling. He's not just saying, you know, that, that I'm, I'm really invested in you guys and, and here's the, the reason and the purpose. But rather, he's telling them that my heart is committed to you. I, I have a sacrificial commitment to, to, to give my life for you, to, to participate in life with you in the gospel as friends. And then later in the chapter, in chapter 2, he's going to tell them, you know, that he has sacrificial love for them. In uh, Philippians 2.17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering... Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. So Paul says, I'm, I'm so invested in you that I'm ready to give my life for you. I'm ready to give everything to sacrifice for you. And Paul wasn't just talk. He wasn't just like, you guys should be united. He led the way. He said, if I have to give my life to pour out my life as a drink offering for you, I will do that. And so he tells them, that his heart, he holds them in his heart, and he's motivated, his thoughts and feelings towards the church are motivated by his heart and their partnership in God's grace. That's the next thing that he says. He says that you were partakers with me in the grace of God. So the Philippians were partners, they were, they were co-partners with him in God's grace. Now, when we talk about partnership, you know, uh, partnerships are usually based upon the ability of partners. The, the, when we uh, talk about uh, startups, my friend, uh, my friend is in a startup right now, and and he has a, a business partner who uh, is great at sales, and he is great in uh, the coding side. And he's building this web app um, to deliver video, and their partnership exists on the basis of one partner being able to deliver a product and to say, you know, here's our vision, here's what we want to see happen. And he sits down, he codes, and he sends out uh, the betas to people, and they give him feedback, and he develops a little bit more. And then when he's done, the other half of the partnership, the guy who, who is great at sales, is going to take the product and then go out into the marketplace and sell it. Their, their partnership in their company is based upon two sets of skills that are brought together for uh, the specific purpose of success to see this, this company take off. But here with the gospel and the grace of God, we're told in Ephesians that we're saved by grace so that nobody can boast, so that nobody can take credit and can say, it, it's, it's because of me that this partnership works. It's because I did such great things that this is successful. Rather, their partnership is in God's grace. They're partakers in God's grace together. And so they're partners in the gospel, they're partakers in God's grace, but it's not because they each bring something to the table. 
It's not because they participate in, in the gospel in a certain way, but they are partners in the gospel because they've been saved by God's grace, because of what he has done. And so every relationship that Paul has, every relationship that he experiences is not merely a relationship that is on human terms, but rather you'll see as you read through his, his letters through all of Scripture, it has a basis that is built upon spiritual partnership. When he writes to uh, the Thessalonians and the Corinthians, he's writing to work out these spiritual realities with those churches. He's never really writing to say, you bring this to the table, so let me leverage this from you, but rather saying, we have a common bond in Christ, and I want to see the gospel flourish among you. I want to see Jesus exalted. And so Paul spends this time communicating to them that they are partakers in the gospel together. He's reminding them there's no reason for your disunity because you didn't bring anything to the table in the first place. You didn't show up with anything. We are brought together by Christ. And so he tells them that they are partakers uh, with him in grace, both in his imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now we talked about how they were more than just hearers of the word. They didn't just hear the gospel and were, were you know, simply uh, receiving it as academic uh, insight. They weren't receiving it as, as just doctrine or theory. They went into practice. And that's what Paul says. You guys are partakers of me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so the Philippians here, they've demonstrated again and again that they are partners in the gospel with Paul. They sent Epaphroditus to prison. So they're assisting him as Paul's in there, and he's going to defend the gospel. And later in Philippians, we'll see that the chains that Paul was in, the the prison that he was in, it didn't hinder the gospel. The gospel flourished as he was in prison under persecution. The gospel ends up going further because there's no there's no room for apathy. You know, there's no room for for you to come in and and just be ho-hum about what you think or feel or believe. When you're challenged, you have to do the research and understand why do I believe what I believe? And that's something I've been really thankful for as we've been able to uh, plant this church and kind of get going and and, um, having such little time as we've had. One of the things that we really focus on and we really enjoy here is being able to explain you know, and to talk about not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it. We want everybody to understand why we're doing it. Because we want to be able to have an answer for each other and for the world. We want to be able to find it in Scripture and say, here's why we're doing this. Here's what the Bible says. Here's how we're going to be obedient to it. Here's how we're going to, we're going to go and love and serve each other. Here's how Jesus was an example of that. Let's go and do it. Here's how you should live in the world because here's how the Bible tells us how we should live in the world. We're always looking for the why. And so Paul... When he's communicating to them, he's explaining, you guys, you are faithful with me in the gospel. You're partakers in the gospel. The gospel's not hindered here while I'm in jail. And so when the Philippians partnered with Paul in the grace of giving to meet his need in prison, they demonstrated, they showed, we're partners in the gospel. We put our money where our mouth is. We did what, what the gospel tells us we should do. They partnered with him in suffering and in defense of the gospel. And notice that he uses those two legal terms because he's about to face a trial. He says that he's going to defend the gospel. He's going to have an opportunity to make a speech of defense. 
And Paul does this all throughout Scripture. When you see, uh, you, you'll see him in uh, Acts 24, I believe it is, before Felix, where he'll make like this great speech defending the gospel. He makes a speech before uh, Agrippa and, and communicating the gospel, and like they're like, you're, you're almost persuading me to become a Christian. Paul has great opportunity to preach the gospel, to, to uh, successfully defend the gospel before uh, the trials, and so Paul is using this trial as an opportunity to make this speech of defense, and he knows he's innocent. He knows that the gospel will show his faithfulness to Christ, and that he will be, uh, you know, it will confirm his identity, that he's, he's rooted in Christ. And so Paul stresses that they are all, not just some, all of them are partakers with him in grace. They share in God's grace that brought them together in the first place from this first day until now, he tells us. And then also, they, it's God's grace that will keep them together as they continue. It's God's, God's work, you know, that he, it tells us in verse 6 there that we, we sung this morning, that uh, uh, he will be faithful to continue that work that he's begun in us. He will be faithful to see that unity brought back. And so Paul goes on to, to give them a little bit more assurance in verse 8. He says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. Now, in, in our culture, it doesn't really carry a lot of weight when you know someone says, God is my witness. And, you know, I remember when I was when I was uh, growing up in elementary school, like kids would say that all the time. They would be like, they would swear by God's name or be like, God's my witness, I will do it. And you're like, you're six and you're like, you know, you're promising, you know, you're going to give me like some candy from your house. Like, I don't know how faithful or what that really means to you. But when Paul's saying this, he's saying that Paul, that God will testify that, that as he stands before God, he means what he's saying. He's not just using this as an, as an offhanded thing to convince uh, the Philippians of something very lighthearted, but rather he's saying, God can testify to the intensity of my love for you, my longing for you. And he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, this is something that we want to take a, a note of as we develop those gospel partnerships, as we develop true gospel community. We want to have our relationships end up in a place where we're not having this longing for each other, to, to spend time with one another on the basis of your own love, but with the love of Christ. That's what Paul says. He yearns with the love that is empowered by Christ, with, with Christ's love. He's saying that his longing for his friends is, it's not about his own love, but it's the love of Christ for them, and he loves them with that same love. Again, kind of coming back to what we were talking about earlier. This is the type of love that we want to have for one another. It, it, and we don't want to try with, to love with our own love because our love has limits. It's, it's finite. You know, there's the way that we love each other with our own type of love often is on the basis of, you know, what have you done for me lately? It's often done out of the motivation of you've pleased me, therefore I will you know, become fond of you. I will uh, enjoy your presence. But as soon as you start to make things uncomfortable, or as soon as you do something that I don't like, then we pull that back. And that's because our love is not godly, true love. That's not the love that's portrayed by God. 
God's love is this agape love. The, the kids downstairs in the children's ministry, they often, you know, it's described to them as God's never, stop, never stopping, never ending, always and forever, unbreaking. I, you know, I'm not probably not getting it right in the whole thing, but it's this always and forever, unbreaking, never stopping, never giving up love that, that God has for, for them. It's the love that he has demonstrated for us. Romans 5.8 tells us that when we were his enemies, not when we were his friends, when we earned it, that he demonstrated his love towards us. When we were his enemies, when we were far from him. And so how much more when we have affection towards Christ will he love us? But he loved us first. His love was not because of what we have done but because of who he is and because his love goes beyond our, our understanding, our human love. And so when we love others, just as Paul said, I pray for them frequently. I pray for you, Philippians. I pray for you often and always. He's, when he comes to prayer, he's understanding God's heart for them and he's loving them with God's love. And you can only love someone, and we'll get to this in a second, you can only love someone with God's love if you get that love from God. And the reason why any of us uh, sh should love each other is because we're, we're loved by God. God loves people. People are important to God. God died for people, for, for you and I. He died for each of us because he loved us. There was no reason that that was like, oh, you guys earned it. You should, have ha you should have this. He died for us, and he made us to be, uh, to be lovely because of his care for us, his love for us. And because God cares for us, we become lovely in the eyes of others. We want to love the things that God loves. The things that are important to God, those things become lovable to us as we gain his heart and we see his mind and his insight for those things. And so as we, as we come into community, we want to love with this same ability. So Paul, uh, Paul embraces the whole community with this love that he, that he brings and again, he, he repeats his love for all. It's the fifth time in, you know, six or seven verses where all of a sudden Paul's saying like all 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 he's hammering on this idea of unity and then he says remarks on this love he shifts to uh, his prayer to intercession he started off his prayer with uh, with these uh, you know with these praises and thanksgiving and now he's shifting to intercession verse nine it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so Paul shifts to intercession. He says, it's my prayer. And he prays for a couple things. The first thing, that your love may abound more and more. What does that mean? He doesn't mean, you know, that you should just kind of muster up and you should feel a little bit more, more sappy and, you know, kind of try to motivate yourself to love a little bit more. Paul says He's praying for their love to grow, to abound. He prays that it would, that it would grow. And he's not just praying for a, a, a greater quantity of love. He's not saying like, oh, I need, I need more, like it's some meter. He's praying that the quality, the generosity, the intensity of their love would grow, that it would abound more and more. You know, you, you, can, you can kind of only do so much when you're talking about like the, the quantity of love. How do you quantify that and put it into something where it's like, I have, you know, 10 love points or 10 love, what does that look like? 
but we grow deeper in love. And that's what Paul's getting at. He wants to move from this surfacey idea where, where you have a fondness for someone. He wants you to grow into the love that God has for them, to grow into the point. And, he's, and Paul's begin laying this foundation by demonstrating the love in his opening of the book where he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's, he's communicating that. He says that he himself is a servant. In all the other books, he remarks that he's an apostle. He's, he's claiming his authority. But here, he says, you guys need to see the love. You need to see that I'm leading the way. I'm a servant. That's what he remarks to, uh, to the Philippians. And later in chapter 2, he's going to say that Jesus is the ultimate servant who loves. And so Paul's kind of laying this foundation and saying, your love is here. It needs to move into a greater intensity. It needs to move to like up here where Jesus' love is. He has set the standard, and that's what we're going for. And so he says, we want to pray that your love may abound more and more. Uh, he's, he, he, and when he's praying for their love, that their love would abound, he's also praying uh, for their growth in their love for Christ and their love for one another. And Paul always does this. The root of, of love for Christ, Paul's always encouraging that people would grow in their knowledge, in their love of Jesus. It's always the highest priority for him. Why? Because of the great commandment. What Jesus told us in Matthew 22, he, when he was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What's the great commandment? What's the, what's the one thing? That, that supersedes everything. And Jesus responds, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. He gives a second. He's not asked for a second, but Jesus gives it. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what's happening here is Jesus is, is, is laying this groundwork. He's saying, you have to love God first, and secondly, you love your neighbor. They, the, the love for God will automatically, when you love God and you enjoy Jesus and you put all of your heart and soul into loving God, it will, it will as a byproduct, flow down into loving your neighbor. Because, as we were talking about, the things that were important to God will become important to you. The way that you feel about, about others as you grow in your love for Jesus, you'll see that those things that Jesus loves people. And then you will have to develop that love for people and so that will kind of continue on. And you're gonna, you will be unable to grow in your love for others. You'll be unable to abound in love, as Paul has prayed for them to do, unless that love is rooted in knowing and enjoying Jesus. And so he says, you have to have this love. He prays that it would abound more and more. But then he says, he has some qualifiers here, with knowledge and discernment. Praise that it would come with knowledge and discernment. So, what's Paul doing here? He's giving us a clue. He's, he's pointing the way for, uh, he's giving us some insight for how our love can abound more and more. He's giving us some insight into what he's calling us to do. He's praying that, that our love would abound more and more. And then he says, here's kind of the secret of how it happens. He says, with knowledge and discernment. He's pointing the way. And so, love is primarily this motive that we are going to get from God. It's a desire that we have to have in order to serve others. And so we need to know how to apply that love. And so Paul says that we should have knowledge. Now, the word that Paul uses here for knowledge is not just, you know, a very, uh, uh, you know, word that would say like, you know, you have to have some knowledge. Paul 
Paul uses a word that indicates mastery. You have to have, you have, to have full knowledge. You have to be all in. And so this is what, what Paul's getting at. One, uh, one commentator kind of describes this knowledge that Paul is talking about. He describes it as recognition of the will of God that is effective in the conduct of one who knows God. Recognition of the will of God that is effective in the conduct of the one who knows God. So it's recognizing the will of God and having your conduct demonstrate that you know the will of God. And we know the will of God by knowing God. When we know God, we know his love for us and for others. And so when we have knowledge of Christ, when we know God, when we know Christ, it multiplies love because it causes us, it causes love to abound more and more. When we understand Christ's heart, when we know him, it ends up giving us his desire. We end up having his love that is infinite, that it's unending, that type of agape love that he has for us, and we want to have that for others. And so he says that we need to have this love, and it comes through knowledge, knowing Christ. Secondly, he says that we should have discernment. Paul prays that we would have this discernment because it's not enough to have knowledge. You can know, but you need to have discernment and knowledge, uh, or discernment and wisdom to apply the knowledge. You need to know how to, to, to take what you know and to apply it. And so discernment here is really uh, dis- defined as a sensitivity to the truth of God and the needs of others as you understand your situation. Sensitivity to the truth of God and the needs of others as you understand your situation. So this means that as we look for knowing God and discernment, that we have to take time to understand people. So we, the great commandment, love God, love your neighbor. And Paul's speaking to community as his overall theme here, trying to bring back unity. We have to take time to understand our neighbor, to understand their, their lives and their fears, their dreams, their needs, the things uh, in their life that they're dealing with, so we can discern how to best love them. And, and, and so knowing Christ and understanding people, they go hand in hand. You can't just love Christ but not care about people because Christ cares about people. And you can't care only about people without loving Christ because you won't love people correctly. You'll you'll love people into idolatry and you'll make yourself their savior. You have to have both. You have to know God, know Christ, and understand people. And love will abound more and more. And so Paul tells us that we need both of those things so that we can love them best. And that's what he goes on to in verse 10. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the reason that they should abound in love is so they can love well, so they can approve what is excellent. Paul's choice here is not between like bad and good. He's not just saying, he's not just saying like, you're either going to do bad or you're going to do perfect. He's saying your job is to, your choices are between okay and excellent. It's, it's just between good and excellent. And everybody always wants to have excellent. That's what Christ is calling us to, to love with the love that he has. And he never loves with just an okay love. He loves us with a perfect love. And so we want to have that same love. Paul's praying for these excellent things for them. 
And when we love excellently, these excellent things are characteristics that mark a maturing Christian. When you are recognizing these things and you discern how to love others in an excellent way, you can discern how to love them best, it's, it's showing that you're maturing, that you are growing in your love for Jesus. And so Paul, his prayer for his friends, the Philippians, is that their love will grow that it will be informed by the gospel of Christ's love for them, that they will know and enjoy Jesus together, and then they will have insight so that way they can know how to best love one another. That's something that we need because, you know, it's difficult to, especially in our day and age, to everyone kind of has their own opinion and you're your own authority, and we really need God's discernment to figure out how we can love others best. We need God's uh, insight to help us love and serve each other faithfully as he would serve us. And so Paul finishes uh, verse 10 by saying that the reason uh, that they should abound in love and knowledge and depth of insight is to approve what is excellent and then so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So the byproduct of having right motives to love God and love others out of a love for God is appearing pure and blameless uh, for the day of Christ. And so when Paul talks about being pure and blameless, when he says pure, he's remarking upon this, uh, this sincerity. He, he's saying there's no hidden motives or pretense. When you love others, there shouldn't be this hidden motive where, where you're kind of like, I'm going to do this to get something from you. I'm going to, to treat you this way or try to kind of butter you up so that way you will, you know, uh, I, I can earn favor in your eyes or I can have something. But we love because God loves us and he's called us to love others and because people are loved by God. So we want to be sincere. And then he says blameless. It, it means simply without offense or it can mean without fault uh, or not causing offense. So Paul's context here, we're, we're looking at this both on an individual context and in a community context, because the love of God that should remark upon our community, upon our church, is a, a, a love that is pure and blameless, and we should be people who are pure and blameless. Paul's context is community. He's desiring that the church and our church be a community that has the love of God abounding more and more, and when the, uh, when the love of God abounds in community, the community, our church, our body of Christ, our local church here in Berkeley, will be characterized by pure sincere desire to love and serve others. And so the, no one's going to be casting blame and saying like, well, you know, I've served in this area, you know, for th three weeks in a row, or I've done this so many times. People will understand and love and serve when your motives are pure, you know, to be able to serve Christ, to, f to, to please him, to know him. There won't be a complaint that exists in that fashion because your motives will not be self-seeking but God-glorifying. No one's going to cast blame and, and because the love of God will abide in us when we know Christ, when we enjoy Christ. Uh, John speaks to this type of attitude in, uh, in 1 John 4, starting in verse 16. He remarks upon uh, upon God and the love of God. He says, God is love, and whoever abides in the love, uh, in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence 
for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I love how John puts it so simply there, how he talks about God is love. That's God's character. It's one of his attributes that defines him. And so if you don't have that love, you don't have God. If you can't love others because God loves others, that's his character, you don't have that same characteristic in you. And so as Paul tells us to have this type of love in the community, we want to be faithful to know God so we can know that love and love others faithfully. And so Paul's focus here is on perfecting the community that's a little bit broken right now. And the purpose of love is to bring about that, uh, you know, uh, restoration to the community, to perfect the community so that it will be seen as pure and blameless. That's what Jesus' work on the cross is for. His love personified in his work upon the cross brought us again back into relationship with God. It brought the church who were not a people, who were once not a people, together as his own special people, his own particular people for the praise of his glory. And that's what he speaks to. That's the work of the cross, the point of it. And so Paul's asking God to do here in his prayer what God has promised to do in verse 6. There, he says in verse 6, he's sure of this. He's confident. He's repeating it again. That he who began a good work in you, he's speaking to the body there, the, the, the Philippian church. That God who began a good work in you, who started this with his own grace, will bring this work to completion. And so Paul is asking him to do that. And then he ends lastly, and we'll end here with verse 11. He says that you, uh, where did I go? Lost my spot. Uh, Okay, he says, so you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul speaks now to this future view of them. He says, you guys are filled with the fruit of righteousness. He's saying, when you continue on, the fruit of, the fruit of righteousness is going to be present in you. They are filled with this fruit that comes not from their own works, but it's the fruit of Christ-like character. It's the behavior that is the fruit of the Spirit. Paul will write this thing, same thing uh, similarly to the Galatians in chapter 5 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. That's the three things that he like, immediately began talking about in this book. Love, joy, peace, patience. We need patience in community. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things should, mark, uh, should be characteristics that, are, that mark our community. That We should see those things both in our lives individually and communally together. We want to have this fruit of righteousness, just as Paul was saying, if you do this, you will have these fruits in your life. 
And that fruit comes from being connected to Christ. The psalmist in Psalm 1-3, he says that, that the godly man, he's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yield its fruit in season. They're connected to this life source that's by the water. And so as Jesus told us in John 15, apart from me, you can bear no fruit. You have to be connected to him. You have to know him and love him and, and enjoy him. You can't bear this fruit on your own. It's the fruit of righteousness, not of your own righteousness, of Christ's righteousness. And so that ends, Paul tells us, when we have that fruit, when we do these things, when we have unity in Christ, it ends with his last little point here, that these things are to the glory and praise of God. Paul begins his prayer with thanksgiving, but he ends his prayer with praise. Paul says here that the point of all these things is not only for unity in the church, because that's what you know, we want to see, but primarily so that we give Jesus glory. The Christian life is not only intended to be uh, fruitful in the way that we do things, we want to prosper, but in our character. Our character should reflect these fruits of righteousness and in turn will give God glory. And that's what we see as, as the, the point of Scripture when we look at the Westminster Catechism. It tells us the chief end of man is to, to uh, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the, the chief end of man. Ephesians 1.12 speaks to this. It tells us that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He doesn't say anything about the journey, like, like you should do this, and you should do this, and you should be involved in all these things. He just says, hope in Christ, praise of his glory. Do this, and then make this your end. Whatever you do along the way, make it end. Everything you do, make it end in the praise of his glory. And so, as we look through the text, both, uh, you know, from verses 3 through 11, we covered a lot of stuff. As we look through the text, it appears that there's a lot to be done. It, it seems like Paul's asking us to do a lot of things, you know, both individually and as a Christian community. You know, he talks about praying for each other often, having unity in the body of Christ, have joy, cultivating gospel partnerships, participating in the furthering of the gospel, abounding in love, having knowledge and discernment, being pure and blameless, being filled with the fruit of righteousness. And instantly it's like, I don't really have like a lot of time to like, Go through that checklist and make sure, like, I'm, I'm good. It, 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 that's what he's calling us to do. He, he says, here's all the things that you need to do. Here's all the things that need to happen. But, in fact, he's calling us to do one thing. Love Jesus. That's it. It's like, that's his whole point. Love Jesus. These things will happen. Great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Those things will flow out of it. Loving others, unity, joy, gospel partnerships, having the fruit of righteousness, being pure and blameless, those things will flow out of loving and enjoying Jesus. So your, your, your end goal, if you take anything away from it, is know Jesus intimately. Love and enjoy Jesus. And as you do that, and as you place yourself in gospel partnerships with other people who love and enjoy Jesus together, and as you go through Scripture together, you'll see these things take place in your life 
as God calls you to go do things, to love and serve him. You'll have opportunities to create unity in the body of Christ. You'll have opportunity to cultivate further gospel partnerships. You'll have opportunity to participate in the furthering of the gospel, both by going and being involved with churches and, and or, you know, even just coming here or going and giving money to missionaries or whatever it is, just as Paul did, praying for people. You'll have those opportunities But those opportunities are not things that you need to just go and seek out to check off these boxes. If you're going to do one thing, love Jesus, enjoy Jesus, do it in community. Do it with other people who love and enjoy Jesus. The rest of these things will work themselves out as you're faithful to know Jesus. I love it because we, you know, what happened, uh, you know, we don't do rule. We don't do like rules and instruction really well. Like we saw it happened in Genesis three. Like he was like, you can do anything, just don't do this one thing. And I was like, I'm gonna go do that. You know, I'm, I'm gonna, what you said, don't do. I'm gonna definitely gonna go do that. And so we we have the one singular focus. We can't save ourselves. We can't go do any of these other things. Just love and enjoy Jesus. And, and we want to see these things happen as byproducts. And so let's pray that the Lord helps us with this. You know, it seems like there's a lot to be done. But, but ultimately, we want Jesus to be the, the desire of our hearts. We want to grow in community. We want to see Jesus made famous in our community. In you know, a lot of you guys are students at Cal. We want to see Jesus made famous there. We want to see, you know, the, the community of Christ um, just operating in a way where we're giving glory to God. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would do that in us. Lord, we're thankful for your faithfulness to us, Lord, and that when we are, are faithless, you remain faithful. And so, Lord, I pray that, that um, as we have been charged in Scripture by Paul to know and enjoy Jesus, Lord, we want to do that. We don't want to just do that alone. It's easy to, to, pursue, uh, to pursue you on our own. But ultimately, Lord, uh, you call us into community so we can love and serve each other. Lord, there's no, there's no point to, to being alone because you've called us to love and serve one another and we can't obey you well, we can't love and serve you well unless we're with others. And so give us this great relationship, this great gospel partnership with one another so that we can be excited about you and enjoy you and rejoice in you together. Lord, we can speak the gospel to one another and remind each other of your faithfulness to us. Lord, we need your help. We know apart from you, we can do nothing, Lord. You tell us in Scripture. We need the empowering of your Holy Spirit to call us to that. Lord, to to make us faithful in that and to enable us to get over ourselves, to get over our individualism and our comfort, Lord. But we know that you have great blessings for us in community, Lord. You want to grow us and prosper us. You want us to abound in love more and more. And so, Lord, this, uh, this morning as, as we hear these things, Lord, we don't want to just be, uh, you know, we don't just want to just receive these things as hearers, but we want to we um, do them as well. And so, uh, challenge us, Lord, um, and, and cause us uh, to pursue you, Lord, more intentionally. We love you. Amen.